Hello and welcome to the agroinnovations.com podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. Today we are with Paul Stamets in a two-part series about Paul's work on mushrooms, mushroom mycelium, and how he believes that mushroom mycelium can in fact help us save the world. And certainly he is already in the process of showing us how mushroom mycelium can change the world and the way that we look at the world. Why don't we get started by you telling us about the role of mushrooms in human history? Now, I know you could probably talk an entire interview about that, but just give people a, a general idea of the role mushrooms have played in history. Well, much of this has uh, recently come to light uh, because, because of the concentration um, on the fossil records. And um, I'd like, like to go way back in time uh, to give people sort of the history uh, of life in the universe, as, at least as far as we know it. Uh, 13.8 uh, uh, billion years ago, there was a Big Bang. We all know about that. And then the Earth coalesced out of stardust around 4.5 billion years ago. The first organisms uh, appeared in the ocean, but the first organisms that came uh, onto land were fungi. They appeared onto land um, about 1.3 billion years ago. They marched onto land, and plants followed 600 million years later. And so fungi munch rocks. They produce acids and enzymes that mineralize rocks. They take calcium and manganese and iron uh, out, out of the rock mantle and in doing so crumble it. And so these are the vanguard species uh, that uh, enter into habitats and then other, bio, um, uh, other organisms follow. Now, we have a more common ancestry with fungi than we do with any other kingdom. Actually, we are, uh, fungi are our ancestors. We split from fungi 600 million years ago. In the Journal of Eukaryotic Microbiology, a new super kingdom was proposed. I think 25 eukaryotic microbiologists co-authored this paper, and they proposed Opisthokonta as the new super kingdom, joining animalia and fungi together. Uh, we, uh, we are animals, of course, and we respire carbon dioxide, so do fungi. Uh, fungi inhale oxygen, just like we do. Uh, we have lots of other similarities. And we, um, as we split from fungi, fungi went underground, so to speak, and we went uh, overground. We uh, digest our nutrients internally, and we have specialized organs, like you know, lungs and brains and, and stomachs. When the fungi went underground, um, they uh, produced this filamentous mat um, called mycelium, and these are very fine, uh, uh, thin, uh, thread-like cells that form networks. And these networks are very interesting because the mycelium digests its nutrients externally and then draws in those nutrients that it needs through its cell walls. But these, these cell walls are very thin, um, and, but the mycelium is, is pervasive in most all soils. There's up to eight miles of mycelium in a single cubic inch. And the largest organism in the world is the mycelial mat, thus far known, in eastern Oregon, over 2,000 acres in size, um, and yet it's one cell wall thick. Now, we have five or six skin layers that protect us from infection. The mycelium has one, and it's surrounded by all sorts of millions of hungry microbes that want to consume it uh, because it is, it is so nutritious. How is it the largest or organism in the world can be one cell wall thick? And um, these are highly evolved organisms, and these mycelial mats are in constant biomolecular communication with the ecosphere, and they can articulate their defenses. 
um, custom-specific to the antagonist that they, uh, they encounter. So the mycelium uh, is, serves as lungs uh, because it's respiring uh, CO2 and inhaling oxygen. Uh, it is an externalized stomach because it's digesting its nutrients uh, outside of its cellular network and drawing in the nutrients that it needs. And I propose that these are neurobiological landscapes and that mycelium, I know, is sentient. And I have a deep belief that mycelium uh, is inherently intelligent. And these, these vast uh, neuromycological networks uh, pervade all ecosystems, and they really are the foundation of the food web. Uh, life has emerged off of uh, roughly six inches of soil. And the fungi are the grand molecular disassemblers in nature, and they give rise uh, to plant and animal communities uh, through the soil matrix that they are creating. So this is a foundational platform of life, and fungi break down rocks, create soil, recycle plant and animal uh, after they die, and in doing so, humus is created. So that kind of gives you a, a, a rough idea um, about how fungi have entered into the landscape, but what really has steered evolution and symbiosis with fungi, to the best of our knowledge, is two uh, cataclysmic events. There was an asteroid impact on Earth 250 million years ago, and when the asteroid hit the Earth, you know, there was a huge amount of debris was, jettis was jettisoned into the atmosphere. The skies darkened with dust. Uh, light was choked off, and uh, over 90% of the species this is at the border of the Permian and the Triassic period, uh, became extinct. And this massive loss of species obviously fueled uh, lots of debris fields, and the fungi surged, and fungi inherited the earth. Those organisms that paired with fungi, uh, since fungi do not require light, um, then benefited uh, in through natural selection. Uh, they were favored, and they surged to the forefront. Now, species diversification occurred, and we marched forward to 65 million years ago, and bam, we get hit by another asteroid. There's a recurring theme here, folks. <laughs> and, um, and the same thing happened. The, the skies were darkened, uh, light was shut off, and, and fungi re-inherited the Earth. Through these two cataclysmic asteroid events, um, pairing with fungi was rewarded. And so those organisms, animals, insects, and plants that pair with fungi had an added had an added advantage in terms of gathering nutrients and being able to survive these uh, long periods of darkness. Now, there's other factors, of course, that have rewarded, have rewarded symbiosis, uh, but this, this is just two examples. The, in the Journal of Geology uh, two months ago, there was an excellent article that was produced um, uh, speaking to a, a fossil um, a group that's been a mystery for over 150 years. And around 1850, I think the first fossil of Prototaxides was found in Saudi Arabia. And they've also found these fossils in, in Quebec and elsewhere. I think there's several dozen of these fossils have been found. And according to the geological record, uh, they existed 420 million years ago. 420 million years ago, the tallest plants on Earth were under two feet tall. And yet this Prototaxides, which, uh, which uh, scientists now believe is a mushroom, stood 30 feet tall and was four feet in diameter. 
So 420 million years ago, the tallest organisms on the planet of Earth were these giant mushrooms. Um, and then plants ascended. We don't know why these things don't exist today, but 99% of the species that have ever existed um, uh, are now extinct. And that's an interesting concept that we're less than 1% of the species that we see today is of, of all the species that have ever existed. But we march forward. And the oldest mushrooms found um, in amber uh, is 100 million years old. Now, if you go back 100 million years ago and you walk through the forest um, and you saw mushrooms, you would recognize them. But if you looked around for something that looked like a human, there'd be nothing in your viewscape or on Earth that even resembled uh, hominids whatsoever. Mushrooms had their form long before we, uh, we had ours. And the, with, there's a form of, of biological racism, unfortunately, that I've been confronting all of my life, and people are prejudiced against mushrooms. You say mushrooms, and people think portobellos are magic mushrooms. Uh, but very few people have any clue uh, that we evolved from fungi, and fungi are our ancestors. And understanding how they emerge uh, through these landscapes and how they have a mothering influence to the benefit of the ecological community becomes a big surprise uh, to those who are not familiar with this subject. It's an extremely exciting field right now because through the theater of evolution, there's been you know, uh, more than a billion years of experiments in nature that I think we can benefit from. And that's what I'm really focused on is looking at that which nature has already invented and seeing how we can uh, apply it uh, or cross-apply it uh, to some of the catastrophia that humans are committing today. So let's let's fast forward a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, the emergence of civilizations, uh, the formation of communities. How have mushrooms, how have people interacted with mushrooms and how have mushrooms shaped the course of history? Excellent question. Um, the famous Iceman that was found in the, in the fall of, I believe, 1991 on the border of Austria and Italy um, is the best preserved remains of a human so far found uh, in a quote-unquote natural setting, which means he wasn't, he wasn't buried. Um, and he apparently died from an infection from an arrowhead in his back. And the Iceman uh, had with him um, two polypore mushrooms. Now, these are wood shelf uh, conch mushrooms. They're in the shape of a hoof, and they often are uh, mostly are attached to trees. And one mushroom that he had in particular has been known throughout the ages as Amadou. And Amadou is the Latin name for the mushroom is Fomis fomentarius. It's a birch polypore. So uh, they are, are very common in birch forests uh, um, throughout the world. And the, this mushroom is a fire starter mushroom. You can hollow this mushroom out, put embers of a fire in it, and keep fire alive for days. This literally allowed uh, and helped the migration of humans out of Africa into Europe because when we moved out of Africa into Europe, we discovered something new called winter. And oops, oops, and if you didn't have fire, your clan would die. And so uh, having the portability of fire enabled human migration and to keep fire alive, and the fire keeper of any clan, of course, uh, historically has been an extremely important role. So the, uh, this woodconk, when you boil it in water and you pound it, it separates into the fibers 
which are my which are mycelium. And when you pound this mushroom after you boil it in water, it separates into a fabric. And this fabric uh, is highly flammable. And it also revolutionized warfare because this is literally the punk that uh, enabled flint uh, spark rifles to work because the spark would fall onto this uh, mycelial fabric, which is highly, highly flammable. It would then burn, and then it would ignite the gunpowder. So this mushroom also revolutionized warfare, and of course any clan or tribe or group that had uh, these weapons versus a tribe that did not would have a strong competitive advantage. Um, there's dozens of examples such as this, um, but mushrooms have been paid, played a pivotal role. And 10,000 years ago, we were forest people. We were in intimate contact with nature. We were dependent upon the forest ecosystems. Uh, our body intellect of knowledge of fungi in the ecosystem, I think 10,000 years ago, exceeds, from a practical point of view, uh, the, the knowledge that we have today. So uh, could you talk a little bit about when people started cultivating mushrooms? What species were they? did they start cultivating? How was it done, and, and where did this occur? The first species, well, being woods people, we would gather wood for fires. And so it's hard to say when this was first noticed, but no doubt in my mind it goes back hundreds of thousands of years in that uh, when you collect firewood, and this is seen today, and you have it by your house, and if it gets wet, mushrooms sprout from the wood. Well, in Asia, the shiitake mushroom it, um, was first discovered. It's interesting. The Chinese say that they discovered it. The Koreans say that they discovered it. The Japanese say that they discovered it, uh, that you could grow shiitake mushrooms on wood. No doubt there's a common truth amongst the three claims. And they, a woodworker, a wood-gathering uh, uh, people would notice that these, uh, these very, very, very delicious shiitake mushrooms would fruit uh, on the wood that they gathered, and they also realized if you took freshly uh, cut wood and you put it in between the logs or limbs that were producing the shiitake, the spore cast uh, from the mushrooms drifting a few inches would land on the adjacent log, and then those logs would become infected or inoculated, and then that way they could perpetually uh, keep the shiitake mushrooms in culture. Um, in Europe, um, the cultivation of button mushrooms really uh, was pioneered in France, and it was one of the gardeners uh, uh, of uh, one of the kings, I think it's King Louis the Fourteenth. and I have to go back to my notes to check on that, and realizing that the mushrooms uh, uh, were growing on horse paddocks and then looking for a moist, uh, constant temperature-controlled environment, there was a nearby cave, and compost was taken down into the cave, and it turned out to be a wonderful environment to grow mushrooms. So there's two separate paths, but clearly the Eurasians and Asians preceded the uh, Western Europeans uh, by several hundred, if not several thousand years. So let's talk a little bit about yourself. Um, and certainly modern technology has impacted our ability to cultivate mushrooms, and you are probably the quintessential example of that. Uh, tell us how you got started as a mushroom cultivator. Well, okay. <laughs> um, I first was fascinated with the cultivation of the um, magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. And um, I was uh, in the woods a lot hunting for these mushrooms. I could never find them. 
but I found lots of edibles, and I steered towards those and learned how to how how to identify several dozen uh, edible and poisonous species, and um, eventually went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, and um, my interest uh, refocused on the psilocybin active species, and I uh, was covered by a Drug Enforcement Administration license for over 20 years uh, through Dr. Michael Bug, uh, who is my professor and a a very good organic chemist who published uh, actually some of the protocols that the DEA still uses today uh, for the accurate uh, accurate analysis uh, of psilocybin content. my focus was taxonomy and scanning electron microscopy, and I spent a lot of time in front of, in front of the, the electron microscope. Uh, and in the winter times, I didn't have fresh specimens, and so I honed my culture uh, skills so I could start looking at mycelium and primordia and morpho- morphological development uh, of these mushrooms because they lead to taxonomic features that are are significant. Most people may not know that uh, the majority of mushrooms. Um, at the earliest stages of their formation, uh, much like an embryo with humans, um, their features are defined. And so looking at these mushrooms uh, at a very young state uh, gave me a lot of information on the morphological development of the mushrooms that lead to taxonomically significant features. So I pursued that for a long time, and I have published uh, four new species in the genus Psilocybe, uh, all of which still survive today. I'm happy to say that because a lot of species are thrown out or thought to be conspecific with other names, and uh, so it's the way of taxonomy names change. But my species uh, concepts and uh, are still valid taxa, and then I have also uh, published some other uh, non-psychoactive species that I, I, have, um, I have found in nature or have participated with others. So that really led into my cultivation skills, um, uh, but then I became more and more fascinated uh, about fungi in the ecosystem. And mushrooms have a tendency to follow catastrophic events. Uh, who knew? Is you know also related to this, to the deep evolutionary history of these fungi uh, responding to catastrophia, whether that catastrophia is your foot breaking a stick, or whether it's an asteroid hitting the Earth. These fungi surge up to capture newly available nutrients. And so I was fascinated by debris trails. And humans create enormous debris trails as we walk across, as we walk across landscapes and we build houses and we cut the forest. So the fungi that are associated with humans uh, became a focus of mine, and the majority of the psilocybe mushrooms uh, are intimately associated with human activity. So if you want to find psilocybe mushrooms in the northwest, you can go to any building, uh, landscaping uh, area that has used wood chips. And classically, those are universities, churches, law enforcement facilities, courthouses, uh, schoolyards, etc. So the bark mulching or wood chip mulching around buildings for landscaping caused a huge surge in these species, which were otherwise rarely found in nature in the wild. I mean, to this day, I've never found Psilocybe cyanescens and Strictopes and a number of other species in, in truly wild environments. They're all closely and intimately associated with human activity. Um, the, as my research continued, then I got more and more interested in the medicinal properties of mushrooms. And so my horizons uh, uh, quickly expanded. And though I 
am an expert uh, on psilocybin mushrooms, and I've published a lot on that subject. Uh, my more recent work in the past 10 years has been more focused on gourmet and medicinal mushrooms. You have often argued, and you've suggested that as, as you're speaking today, that mushroom mycelium is one of the key components missing in sustainable food production. Could you explain what you mean by this? Well, because fungi recycle and because fungi create soils, a big missing component that I see in permaculture and in other uh, agricultural practices, uh, people talk about soil uh, without really defining uh, how it's made or the processes that lead to its making. And this is where engaging fungi uh, enhances soil development far faster if you knowingly and purposely introduce fungi on, for instance, wood chips or corn stalks or wheat or grasses or anything that's a consequence of farming or forestry, you can recycle those nutrients quickly into the soil bank. Um, we generate soil here when we grow shiitake mushrooms on sawdust. We can uh, create beautiful, dark, shinozen-like soil in a matter of three to four months. And some people have said it takes a 1,000 years to develop an inch of soil. You know, true from one perspective. If you actively engage fungi uh, and steer their decomposition uh, specifically, you can generate soil uh, w within a year. And so soil enhancement and the adverse, soil, the loss of soil, is what is impugning the food chains and causing famines and leads to drought and desertification because thickening the humus uh, and recycling uh, these plant and animal nutrients back into the carbon bank uh, thickens the soil, increasing its carrying capacity, leading to higher, uh, more and more biodiversity and a more biodiverse uh, uh, ecosystem that is constructed, so to speak, uh, on thickening soils uh, leads to greater sustainability. And thinning soils um, uh, leads to less sustainability. For three years, I actually was a logger, and young men, I think, have this death wish, you know, and they're between eight, 18 and 25, and, and uh, it's, it could be testosterone poisoning. Who knows? But I think as a, as a group, young men like to test themselves and see what they're, what they're made of, and maybe that was my urge. And I was a long-haired hippie, and went into the woods and um, unfortunately cut down the old-growth forest. And I was mesmerized uh, and conflicted, you know, going into these old-growth forests that are so beautiful, and then the chainsaws would start in the morning and by the afternoon, you'd see sky and all of the trees would be laying down and a massive evaporation, uh, massive heat increase. And then the logging trucks, some of these logging trucks were three log loads, three logs on a logging truck. The trees were that big. And, uh, and I was wondering to myself, where's all this carbon coming from? I can see where it's going. It's going on the logging trucks. But where did it come from? And then if you think back now, and uh, for what's happened, we're in a third generation to fourth generation uh, forest now here in the Northwest, except for the 5% of the old growth forest that still remain. When you, let's just go back in time again. 1900, you know, the first uh, European settlers came to the Northwest. Uh, and they cut the forests, usually near to the uh, waterways, uh, near to the salt water or near rivers because they, they could float the logs. So in 1900, they first cut the forests, and then they burned. So that's two insults on the carbon bank. 
Now, Cuban salt in the carbon bank of soil that was built only in 10,000 years, because the last ice age ended about 10,000 years ago, and as the ice receded, it scraped the soil and, and flushed it into the ocean. Anyone seen this around who's, who's watched glaciers recede? It's a moraine, gravelly-like uh, 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 non-soil that, that is left. And there's small lenses of soil that do survive. And these lenses then rebound, and the plant successions occur, and they die, and the lens gets a little bit bigger. Well, it's mycelium that's creating that uh, through the entire process. So in 1900, we cut the forest. We burn up two insults on the carbon bank. 1950, there's a second cut. And they cut, and they burn again. So that's four insults on the carbon bank. Year 2000, or, or in this period now, uh, the forests are cut a third time, and then they're burned. Six insults on a carbon bank, which took 10,000 years to create. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand uh, that that is not sustainable. And as a result, we get premature decline. Uh, trees are toppling uh, earlier because the root wads can't support the trees because the soil is not there. And so the logging industry goes, uh-oh, we better cut the trees sooner. And so there's a, we're going down a slippery slope of diminishing returns, and um, this is not sustainable. And so I think engaging these fungi uh, and, and, and getting them to actively recycle nutrients is a way of, uh, of a much better path than that which has been practiced. And I'm, I'm opposed to burning. Um, I, um, I know it's controversial for people around Lake Tahoe right now because a lot of those million-dollar homes have burned up because of uh, the uh, brush control has been, re- has been restricted. But, you know, we are uh, a species that has invaded a native landscape, and I think that we have to have some, some sensibilities about how, how to live within the ecosystem uh, in such a way that our children will also enjoy it. The problem that I think we face uh, uh, in the world today is the eagerness for short-term benefits and not looking downstream into future generations. You know, if our ancestors had behaved the way that we are behaving now 2,000 years ago, uh, and indeed in some places they have, um, you know, the ecosystems uh, would not be thriving um, as well as they are today. And I think that, you know, a clear example is I've been to Shanghai twice, and, uh, and Shanghai has committed ecological suicide. There's no way there's enough plants that are, produ- that are producing enough oxygen uh, for the city of Shanghai. In fact, a, um, a well-known ecologist that I, I was in correspondence with told me that there's no amphibians within 30 miles of Shanghai. There's no frogs, no amphibians. Uh, and he was absolutely in despair because he was basing his studies on prior work and talking about the biodiversity in the landscapes around Shanghai. Now, take Shanghai as an example. If that's our model, and if we look into our glass ball into the future, and if the whole planet becomes like Shanghai, well, obviously, there's not going to be enough oxygen, uh, and we're going to have a tremendous collapse uh, of ecosystems, including uh, the ecosystems that support us. And so we need to come into balance with our growth, with our population growth, and how these ecosystems are protected and preserved, because protecting and preserving them is preserving our own future and that of our, of our descendants. That does it for part one of our interview with Paul Stamets. Please be sure to check back with us in about a week for part two at agroinnovations.com slash podcast, where we will post the second part of Paul's interview 
where he gives some specific examples of how mushroom mycelium applies in pesticide control, medicine, biofuels, and other areas of interest that Paul is certainly an expert in. We also have some other great interviews coming up. Bill Mollison, pioneer of the concept of permaculture, and Ron Golden, who is uh, president of Agrotherm Limited, who has pioneered a pyrolysis technology, which is specifically relevant for third world agricultural applications. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Frank Aragona. This is the agroinnovations.com podcast. Saludos. Thank you.